Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our music today is by African-American women whose artistry is powerfully unique and yet speaks to the common and continuing struggle for freedom for black women in the U.S. We open with Nina Simone's Revolution from 1969. Our show today is Dynamite Has No Politics, the anarchism of Lucy Parsons. In 1884, Parsons wrote in her well-known essay, Two Tramps, Can you not see that the good boss or the bad boss cuts no figure whatever, that you are the common prey of both, and that their mission is simply robbery? Can you not see that it is the industrial system and not the boss which must be changed? Our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of The Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. She is professor and chair of the History Department at the University of Texas in Austin. I'll share a secret with you. Sometimes I find an easy way to confound my own historical simple-mindedness is to juxtapose events and dates that often aren't thought of together. For instance, Ulysses S. Grant died in 1885. His funeral in New York City was an immense spectacle, attracting a reported 1.5 million people. His pallbearers included both Union and Confederate Army generals. Karl Marx, who reported on the U.S. Civil War for the New York Tribune, died in London, a stateless person, in 1883, with the reported 9 to 11 mourners. As an interesting aside, both men died destitute. In 1887, the year Walt Whitman died in Camden, New Jersey, Albert Parsons was hanged in Chicago for being an anarchist rather than for throwing a bomb in Haymarket Square. Emma Goldman, radicalized by Haymarket, perhaps the most famous anarchist this country has known, would surely cite Whitman's Leaves of Grass, first published in 1855 as an essential work of anarchist ideals. In 1872, Albert Parsons, a white man and former Confederate Army soldier, married Lucia Carter. Lucia had come to Texas from Virginia, where she was born to an enslaved woman. The Parsons quickly moved north to Chicago. As the brief hope of Reconstruction gave way to Jim Crow laws, Lucia Carter became Lucy Parsons, goddess of anarchy, the woman the Chicago police claimed was more dangerous than 1,000 rioters. Chicago was bursting at the seams with anarchists, though, being home to a large number of German immigrants and was, at that time, the home of Johann Most, the popularizer of the so-called propaganda of the deed, violent actions intended to incite revolution. And it is here that we find dynamite. It is here, in the midst of the Gilded Age, that we find in America much like it is now, with wealth amassed in the hands of the few and the masses living in poverty. It is here that wage slavery is the best life to be hoped for and monopoly capital rules. And it is here where Lucy Parsons fashions her identity as one of the most eloquent and incendiary speakers of the age. In a coincidence we like to figure as fate, Lucy means life. We begin with origins and Lucy Parsons' subsequent refusal to be chained to them. We did a show not too long ago on W.E.B. Du Bois, and one of the things that struck me about Du Bois was that he, uh, one, lived so long uh, that he was, I think, 95 when he died, but that he pretty much straddled what I would guess is kind of the 
the sort of most important era of America in some sense, right? We go from the Civil War uh, through Re- Reconstruction to the Progressive Era, era to uh, to World War One, World War Two, etc., and and into civil rights even with the boys. So it's one of those things that you're kind of shocked about some of these um, lifespans and life experiences that people live. And it, it, it struck me that Lucy Parsons as well uh, sort of encompassed that same history. Situate her in history, I guess. Well, she was born in 1851 to an enslaved woman in Virginia. So she lived 14 years in slavery. In uh, During the Civil War, her owner brought the plantation including her mother, her, and her younger brother to Texas, where they settled in McLennan County in central Texas. Right after the war, she and her mother, and by that time, two younger brothers, moved to the nearest town, uh, Waco, Texas. And it was in Waco that she met her future husband, Albert Parsons, a white man. He was active in the Republican Party at that time, very much um, a part of the political turmoil that marked Texas after the Civil War. The two of them moved, or maybe I should say fled, to Chicago in 1873 as an interracial couple. They would not have had much of a future together in Texas um, into the 1870s. So um, they spent the rest of their lives in Chicago. Albert, of course, implicated in the Haymarket bombing of 1886. He did not throw the bomb, but he was arrested, convicted, and executed for conspiracy to murder for that bombing in May of 1886 that claimed the lives of seven policemen and four others. Um, After the Haymarket bombing, um, Lucy Parsons became a national figure in her own right. She uh, conducted a national speaking tour to raise money for the defense of her husband and the other defendants. And after his death, she remained a very prominent fixture on the national scene and was well known for her eloquence as an orator and for her very fiery speeches. She um, was there for the founding of the Industrial Workers of the World in Chicago in 1905. She participated in hunger demonstrations at Hall House in 1915. She was in the Northwest when the Wobblies conducted their free speech campaigns during World War One, and she uh, lived uh, until 1942. She died in a house fire at the age of 91. So, like Du Bois, her life really did span these um, uh, a very impressive number of years and uh, certainly a large number of. Um, you know, critical periods in American history. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And uh, there's, uh, I think, one of the the particular contentions in your book that we'll get to, but we can touch on it now as we're talking about Du Bois, is the sort of distinction that we could make between the two in terms of their own particular focus. Du Bois, of course, focused on race in particular, not uh, not to the exclusion of class awareness. He obviously was able to do multiple things. Uh, But uh, your point in your book is that Lucy Parr uh, is primarily a, a, a class uh, uh, structure anarchist in a sense, right? She's primarily for the working class as opposed to the capitalist class, as opposed to wealth, um, and doesn't really touch on issues of race in her own uh, activism and uh, speech uh, speeches and writings. Yes, that's definitely true. She saw herself as 
a champion of the urban laboring classes, uh, especially those white men who worked in factories or sweatshops. She and uh, the other socialists that she considered comrades, uh, she and Albert were very much part of the socialist community in Chicago when they first moved there in 1873. By the early 1880s, though, they had uh, swerved toward anarchism. They rejected the ballot box, which was the kind of defining um, element of the socialist platform at that point, the need to change the political system. Uh, but she really was uh, kind of principled in her um, decision not to pay attention to marginalized workers. Uh, she said really nothing about the black laboring classes in Chicago. She and other socialists and anarchists tended to demonize the Chinese as cheap labor. So it is an interesting fact of her life that when she first launched her speaking tour, that was in the fall of 1886 after her husband had been convicted at the Haymarket trial, she adopted a new persona. She claimed that she was the daughter of Native American and Hispanic parents. She never admitted that she had been born a slave. And, you know, in the book, I speculate about why that was so. I think she felt that she had more credibility with a white working class audience if she presented herself as uh, Native American and Hispanic and not as African American. I will say she was very light skinned. Uh, people who saw her could not um, tell her origins just from the way she looked. So she took advantage of that kind of ambiguity in her physical appearance. She didn't make a lot of this uh, identity. She said at one point, people care nothing about who I am, my background. Uh, they only care about my message. And she was not correct about that. People were fascinated by her and they did want to know more about her background. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Dynamite Has No Politics, and our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. Well, one of the things that, again, strikes one, you know, trying to understand his history and thinking about people within it and how they come to be who they are, uh, trying to wonder about yourself, right? How you come to be who you are and the things that make you who you are. Um, we, we forget the world as it was in some sense, right? Part of your job as a historian and within the book is to try to paint, uh, the picture of the world as it was. And imagine, like I, I try to imagine what government is, right, in 1853, in 1872, whenever, to think, what is government to be against, right? What is government to be anarchist against, uh, against right? So in a, in a world that Lucy Parsons, or Lucy, um, I forget uh, what, Gathings, is that who? Is uh, that? Lucy, Lu, Lucia Carter was Lucia her Carter, okay. maiden made name. She never referred to herself uh, by the name of her um what we think was uh, who we think was probably the father of her first child. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So she, Oliver, right. Yeah. So, you know, trying to imagine, um, this confluence of Albert Parsons, who, as you, as you point out, or, uh, you know, is known, he's a, uh, a soldier in the Confederate, 
army who moves to Texas and becomes an, a newspaper man with his brother. Is that right? Uh, yes, his brother was a general in the Confederate mm. Army, William H. Parsons. So, mm -hmm. And together, the two of them did uh, become Republicans, prominent Republicans in the state of Texas. Mm -hmm. They, The brother, William H., uh, much older than Albert, was called uh, a business Republican. Mm. He very much uh, wanted to see the state subsidized railroads. He wanted to get charters for bridges and dams and felt that there was a lot of um, commercial opportunity, financial opportunity mm -hmm. in the new Republican Party that would focus on infrastructure and, mm -hmm. uh, and other things. But yes, these two um, were certainly unusual. It was a very dangerous thing to be a Republican in Texas uh, after the Civil War. Albert uh, was fearless. He loved to get up on a bale of cotton and declaim for hours at a time. He did organize black voters to uh, black men to vote. And um, I think he felt he had a real future for himself in the Republican Party in Texas until the Democrats uh, came back into power in 1872 and mm -hmm. 1870. And then he realized that really the numbers were against the Republicans. They relied mostly on a few white men and almost all black men. And the numbers were just not there to sustain a Republican Party going into the future. Well, you, you mentioned Republican Party there, and, and we should always clarify, you know, this is Republican Party of Lincoln, of course. And yes. and, and to try to understand, uh, again, the fact that Albert uh, and Lucy are married, legally married, within basically a one-year time frame where they could have been legally married, right? <laughs> where, where, right. Yeah. That was a very savvy move on Albert's part. The Republicans and and as you're right, uh, you're right, of course, that we're talking about uh, Repu the Republican Party in favor of a strong government, uh, equal rights to an extent, uh, not completely for black people. But again, it was the Democrats uh, who were the neo-Confederates in Reconstruction Texas, the Democrats who wanted local control who wanted black workers to stay in their place on farms. Uh, you mentioned the federal government. It certainly was not as powerful and all-encompassing as it is today mm -hmm. in the 1870s and 80s. But I think what both Parsons objected to mostly was the collusion between the federal government and capitalists. So if you look at the great uprising in 1877, the great railroad strike that summer, You'll see uh, the federal government deploying troops, uh, arming men to fight against strikers in Chicago and many other places around the country. And that was a defining moment, I think, for both Lucy and Albert Parsons, as they saw this kind of unholy alliance between the uh, owners of factories and sweatshops and federal the federal government, that there would be this physical force, uh, real violence brought to bear on maintaining the power of these capitalists. So mm -hmm. when they talk about the government, um, they very much are thinking about uh, the government as a um, as an enabler, a promoter of capitalist authority and depredation. It's time for a break. This is New Beginning by Tracy Chapman from 1995. When we come back, we'll find out just how much 2018 sounds a lot like 1886. 
Stay with us for more on Lucy Parsons, the goddess of anarchy, when Interchange returns. Ain't worth fixing. It's time to start all over, make a new beginning. Too much pain, too much suffering. Of the start all over, make a new beginning. But don't get me wrong, I love life and living. But when you wake up and look around, everything that's going down, all wrong. See, we need to change it now. This world with too few happy endings. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is on the goddess of anarchy, Lucy Parsons. And our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of a new biography of Parsons. In this segment, we'll look at anarchy as a necessary response to the economic realities of the times. And we'll discover how much our current state of affairs seems hardly different from the 1880s. Oh, and you know, there's dynamite. One of the issues that, again, um, obviously we confront these things all the time now as well. There is this period, though, that it's uh, boldly or baldly uh, very clear that cities uh, and the federal government as well sort of in in thrall to, you know, monopoly capital, capital, I suppose, right? So even in, in Chicago in particular, uh, where this foment really happens for Lucy and Albert Parsons, um, this is the issue, right? Anarchy is against as much uh, capitalism uh, and the government is the handmaiden to capital at that point. Right. And I should say that there are uh, variations on the anarchist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, Certainly, there were some anarchists who believed in a very strong state. There were some anarchists who today we would label as radical libertarians, no state at all. Uh, There were some anarchists who were unabashed in their uh, call for violence, Johann Most and others like him. But the uh, Parsons were somewhat different. They believed that the key to a just society uh, was the trade union. They said trade unions were sort of embryos of uh, the good society. These would be voluntary associations where men and women would come together based on their skill. They would cooperate, they would trade, they would barter, there would be no cash involved. This would be a cashless society. And harmony and justice would reign. So today we can um, sit back and say, you know, this seems very naive and foolish, but they are very much opposed uh, to the partisan political system, and they're very much um, focused on issues today. We, we recognize uh, the growing inequality between rich and poor, the corrupt 
nature of partisan politics, the fact that the Republicans and Democrats did not seem all that different when it came to upholding capitalism. So in the 1870s and 80s, I think the Parsons were very much heirs to a kind of cooperative Commonwealth impulse Hmm. that we see emerging in the antebellum period. Well, the interesting thing is that Lucy Parsons holds on to this um, through the 20th century. You know, it's kind of odd in the 1930s to be advocating for a cashless Mm -hmm. and wageless society. Uh, But she really was kind of unwavering there Mm -hmm. in her beliefs. Well, uh, I'll read really quickly. This is a um, an 1886 Post uh, St. Louis Post Dispatch interview, uh, apparently with Lucy Parsons, uh, and I think this is uh, this is post uh, or during the trial. Perhaps it's uh, October 21st. She wrote, and this is what you were just talking about: this era and what, an era we're we're clearly in something of the same kind of era. This is the evolutionary stage of anarchism. She says the revolutionary period will be reached when the great middle classes are practically extinct. The great monopolies and corporations and syndicates met with on every hand are now rapidly extinguishing the middle classes, which we regard as the great bulwark between the monopoly and the great producing or working classes. There will come a time when there will be in this world only two classes, the possessing and the non-possessing class, the middle classes having been forced into the wage class. So this is not, uh, this is something you could read in, you know, the the newspaper or the online magazines, uh, Yesterday, this these are well, yeah yeah yeah. Um, she, I mean, it seems straightforward enough. Right. Uh, technological advances were displacing huge numbers of workers in various kinds of industries, and the homeless population, the jobless popula- population of Chicago, was growing exponentially during these years. And like socialists and anarchists all over the world, the Parsons really did believe that enough people would be thrown out of work so that eventually there would be no consumer base for the products produced by capitalists. And if no one was around to buy the products, the whole uh, system would be vulnerable to, um, you know, to revolution. And it was just a matter of time then when the dispossessed and those weary workers who were paid so little joined together to challenge the owners. Um, Now, what they didn't really anticipate or understand, and and this is true, I think, for the 1880s and 1890s, is that the American economy had a tremendous capability to expand and to add new jobs. So as we think of the beginning of a consumer economy, the beginning of department stores, commercialized entertainment, um, new kinds of products that are marketed to people who didn't even know they needed them, uh, the number of jobs actually increases. And Leanne was able to absorb, to a certain extent, you know, 23 million immigrants who came to this country between 1880 and 1915 or so. So the Parsons, um, you know, Albert was executed in 1887. Um, I do say, though, that, that Lucy Parsons remained kind of oblivious to this new economy, which was so obvious in Chicago with amusement parks, department stores, um, athletic contests, um, vaudeville, you know, different Mm. ways for people to spend money. And in the process, the laboring class has become, to a certain extent, part of this new consumer class, which really does transcend uh, economic divisions. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the system obviously found a way to increase its middle class. 
to right. to increase that bulwark. Uh, so, uh, the, the, I guess that's that's the issue that we come up against here. If indeed we are uh, two separate classes, one immensely wealthy and one uh, immensely poor, uh, uh, these anarchist writings probably have more um, more to them in that sense. Yes, they do. And again, they seem very prescient about the baleful effects of technology on the workplace. Uh, and the uh, arrogance uh, of capitalists, this collusion between the government and capitalists. Um, you know, yes, these are all themes that resonate with us today. Mm-hmm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Dynamite Has No Politics, and our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. Let's stick with Albert and Lucy in Chicago, uh, and I think I would like to think a little bit about Haymarket and Dynamite in particular. Particular, the you, you point out that, uh, and we've talked on this show. Uh, we've had uh, an Emma Goldman show, and we've had some other shows where we've talked about Haymarket in the past. But the the fact that no one actually was convicted of throwing a bomb because they didn't know who threw the bomb, um, and that most of the problems with most gatherings turn out to be problems created by the police, uh, generally creating violent situations themselves. It's, I don't know if it's plausible or not, but I assume provocateurs are, uh, are certainly a, a part of this milieu as well. So it's possible the Haymarket bomb not even thrown by an anarchist, uh, and anarchy is on trial there. Uh, one of the things that you point out in your book, and I think is pointed out throughout, that, that Lucy Parsons, as an anarchist, as an agitator, gets a kind of pass in in sort of the legal system in some sense because she is a woman uh, it seems right there's a sense that Lucy Parsons why why isn't she hanged as well I guess is, is the question right well and there were some people in Chicago who, who yes thought that that would be a, a just thing to do I should point out that her writings were extremely provocative mm-hmm. she had a, an essay in her husband's periodical the alarm uh, the first issue of that in 1884, October of 1884, it was called Two Tramps. And she, it's I say it's kind of Victorian sentimentalism uh, merged with Victorian goth, goth, um, uh, Gothic sensibility. She tells about um, a fictionalized worker. He's um, thrown out of work. He is wandering around. He has a starving wife and children at home. He contemplates suicide uh, in Lake Michigan. And she says to him, no, no, don't do that. Um, uh, Take some dynamite and go to the home of your oppressor, go to the home of the factory owner and make him pay. And at the end of that um, piece, she writes in italics, learn the use of explosives. And I should say that Albert Parsons' paper, The Alarm, as well as the other um, anarchist papers in Chicago at the time, those that were edited by German immigrants uh, primarily, did use uh, very provocative language, did hail dynamite as what they considered a great leveling force. Uh, You know, here was the uh, power of the state represented by cannon, rifles, Gatling guns, you know, whenever workers went out on strike. 
the anarchists said, well, with a small amount of dynamite, we can, um, you know, kind of level this playing field and really strike back against our oppressor. So their periodicals were filled with these pans to dynamite, uh, you know, learn to use these. And I will say, um, as I made the point in the book, that Albert and his comrades did, I think, try and manipulate both journalists and police into thinking that they really possess the power of explosives. He knew when he was dealing with undercover cops, uh, he appealed to reporters all the time. He would say, come look, you know, come to my office at the alarm and see what I've got that will really change the nature of class relations in Chicago. And he would pull out um, wires and various things that uh, he led them to believe were actual explosive devices. So that's the context, I think, for Haymarket, that uh, he wanted the police and the press to believe that anarchists were very powerful, even though their numbers were very, very small. Mm -hmm. And ironically, he succeeded because when the bombing occurred, uh, the police went to the usual suspects. They really just went to Albert Parsons, other anarchist orators, and arrested them on charges of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Getting back to your point about Lucy, that's interesting because she was the author of many of these, you know, pieces on dynamite. And uh, there was an uh, article in the Chicago Tribune where uh, uh, reporters asked this detective, you know, will Lizzie um, Swank, who was a friend of Lucy Parsons, will Lizzie Swank and Lucy Parsons be the next people you arrest? Or will they be protected because of their gender? And the answer was the latter, that uh, although both of them were equally uh, provocative and raw in their speech, um, calling for violence, uh, they did manage to escape arrest. There's a new day coming, everything gonna be turning over. It's time for another break. This is There's a New World Coming by Bernice Johnson Reagan from 1997. When we come back, anarchism as a kind of communalism. Stay with us. There's a new day coming. Everything gonna be turning over. Everything gonna be turning over. Where you gonna be standing when it comes? For far too many years, I've been marching, singing, and talking. Doing things I thought would make me free. While people halfway around the world, they've been fighting and dying and bleeding. Now it seems that they're gonna be. There's a new world coming, everything gonna be turning over, everything gonna be turning over, where you gonna be standing when it comes, you know the book, the Bible, you read it and you see. It will surely come to pass 
This is how it's gonna be. Those that were weak Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. For this segment, we'll look at the actually existing anarchism of 1880s Chicago. Really a kind of social practice, a way to belong for the immigrant population of the city. And we'll find out why Lucy Parsons was more dangerous than 1,000 rioters. Everything gonna be turning over. Everything gonna be turning over. Where you gonna be standing when it comes? These are obviously fascinating things, right? To imagine, uh, again, trying to sort of cast forward and backwards at the same same time and say, you know, this is a, a period, our own period, in which so many people are impoverished, and yet so many of those impoverished uh, people have access to weapons, you know, to real weapons, and, uh, and I assume can manage dynamite as well at some point if they really wanted to. So, you know, we it's have... Yeah, go ahead. It's not clear how pervasive mm-hmm. uh, the use of dynamite was. I mean, I really think that it was a scare tactic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm more than anything else. Um, and as you point out, uh, the identity uh, of the bomber remains unknown to this day. And, uh, you know, the, I, I say that there were some odd things about Haymarket in the sense that I know that Albert committed perjury on the stand. And he continued to claim that um, he never would have gone to Haymarket with his children and his wife if he had known that something was going to happen, if someone was going to throw a bomb. Mm-hmm. But we know that he he did not take his children to Haymarket. We know that they uh, were taken home after a meeting before Haymarket by, um, I'm not sure who, but it was a fiction that both he and his wife maintained uh, forever, basically, that the children were there sitting next to her, to Lucy Parsons on a wagon during the Haymarket rally. And that just was not true. And I, I always wondered why he felt he had to, to say that and whether he might have known something was going to happen that night. He didn't know what. I, he certainly didn't throw the bomb. We know that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, one of the things that um, I guess that is fascinating, too, is that this this period, this period of uh, uh, unrest, labor uh, versus capital, labor versus owners, is also a period of real uh, immigration uh, and, uh, I guess, uh, immigrant communities, right? So this, this sort of sense of othering communities in, in, within the midst of... Uh, a city like Chicago, where you have German language anarchist newspapers, right? That are like seven or eight, nine, you know, anarchist newspapers to the one that I think Albert Parsons was editing at the time, you know, the one English language mm-hmm. newspaper. So there's there are a whole uh, communities that are uh, European or Eastern European, or you know, that are just come over, um, that are confronting. Uh, this country and its labor practices at the time and really wanting to change that, right? Really wanting to make a difference in that way. Yes, and many of these uh, Germans were refugees from Germany, which had installed anti-socialist laws. Many of them were radicals. And one of the interesting things is that the Parsons do become very much integrated into this German immigrant community in Chicago. But what that also means is that they adopt the socialists and later the anarchists 
um, organizing strategies which are very much European in tradition. So, uh, for instance, the socialists and then the anarchists uh, denounce the church. Uh, and they denounce um, all trappings of government, whether it's the Constitution or the Congress or the president. They denigrate uh, political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. But many of these strategies just did not resonate with native-born American workers at this time, many of whom were very loyal to either the Republicans or the Democrats, many of whom thought that they were going to be able to um, eventually own their own small business, many of whom felt very patriotic when it came to the American flag and the Constitution, uh, many of whom identified with the Roman Catholic Church or with um, a Protestant denominations. So these European um, tendencies, these impulses in radical organizing really did not translate very well to uh, the Chicago scene. And that's why these radicals really did not attract great numbers of workers in the end. I mean, these radicals were very outspoken, and I think they gave the impression that they were more numerous than they were in the end. Another um, aspect of their strategizing was to sponsor huge parades. Mm working men and women, and these would draw in trades unions and, and workers from all over the city, and they were quite um, spectacular, and they were very entertaining. Uh, and the after a parade, you know, the, the anarchists would sit back and say, you know, wow, you know, what a success that was. Look at the numbers. Look at the fervor. Look at the passion uh, that these these spectacles uh, generate. But why why are workers not lining up to ignite the revolution? So they, they couldn't really detach the spectacle from um, the serious reservations that many workers had about this message, which I said was very much formulated in Europe and did not, um, did not translate to the U.S. very well. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Dynamite Has No Politics, and our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. It's interesting to think of uh, parades and carnivals intended to uh, sort of foment dissent and division when, in, uh, and I don't know when this happened in this country as the parade, the carnival is actually, you know, it does the opposite, right? It, it encourages your patriotism. It encourages, like there should, I, I'm, I assume someone has written the history of the parade or the carnival and how it, how it has multiple uh, ways in which it, it, it creates the, the, the community it lives in. But it's interesting to think of it in in the U.S., a parade to me is you know a Fourth of July parade. It's a it's a pro propaganda tool, and and I think at some point in the, in the book you do talk about the fact that people are are just enjoying themselves. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. and then often there were these big processions. They wound their way through the streets of Chicago. They were organized according to craft. So the butchers would have a float, and the carpenters would have a float, and so forth. And then at the end they would um, culminate at a park. 
park where there would be a picnic. And it was during the 1880s that the anarchists loved to sponsor Sunday picnics because, again, they they thought this was a great opportunity to get a lot of people together. It was a day off from work. People were interested in socializing. But I think often those picnics were really uh, pretty apolitical. You know, the the speakers got some attention, but um, basically people were there to relax. And again, there was a kind of a mismatch between the anarchist assumption that, you know, the people who show up are going to be the um, the, the revolutionaries tomorrow. That mm-hmm. just uh, did not happen. Well, you get the sense throughout that these are opportunities, th- these are performances in many ways, right? So there is this sense that uh, people are attending rallies, attending these events to be entertained by radicals in some way, right? To hear an Albert Parsons, who, uh, who apparently was a great orator, to hear Lucy Parsons, to see Lucy Parsons, not to be anarchists, right? <laughs> Right, and she she um, really was happy to play that role. Mm-hmm. She and her friend Lizzie Swank often appeared at the front of anarchist processions, one carrying the uh, black flag of revolution, the other um, uh, the black flag of um, uh, universal uh, brotherhood and mm-hmm. the red flag of revolution. And uh, they loved, um, again, making radical pronouncements. They seemed to be stepping out of their sphere as women. It was very unusual to see women take this very public role. Mm -hmm. I think that was certainly part of Lucy Parsons' appeal as she spoke around the country. I devote a whole chapter to her speechifying and to people's reactions to her and the way she comported herself in front of a huge crowd. She Love nothing else, uh, nothing more than to get up in front of hundreds of people and um, keep their attention for an hour or more Mm -hmm. as she denounced the capitalists, claimed that she wanted to run the guillotine, the chopped off the head of the capitalists, and um, said she was an anarchist and proud to be one. Um, She was tall. She was impeccably dressed. I mean, she's really quite... um, quite striking. And and people who knew her and saw her in person said she was very beautiful. And she, you know, kind of capitalizes on her her appearance and on the novelty uh, of her appearance uh, and becomes very well known throughout the Midwest and uh, the East Coast for her very fiery speeches. Mm -hmm. If We Must Die is the poem that makes me a poet among colored Americans. If we must die, let it not This be is our final break. We'll hear Interlude, Six-Legged Griot Trio, Weariness, by Michelle Endegiocello from 2002. When we return, Lucy versus Emma. Stay with us. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained honor us though dead. O kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for the thousand blows deal one death blow. But though before us lies the open grave, like men we'll face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. In our final segment of Dynamite Has No Politics, 
We'll try to understand why Lucy Parsons seems a kind of curio, somewhat pinned down by history to the Haymarket affair and the anarchist scene of immigrant Chicago, and why Emma Goldman seems to have trumped Parsons in the history books. As you say, she presents a kind of enigma in many ways, right? There, especially in this time period, uh, as you say, she's a woman. Uh, she's a, a quote-unquote of indeterminate origins. Of course, you you were able to trace her lineage uh, back to having uh, uh, an enslaved uh, uh, parentage. She was born um, to that world as well. She comes out of it and begins to uh, be, as you say, uh, an orator, an anarchist, a, uh, a celebrity, a public speaker. She comes into her own. Uh, as you say, I think at some point she's, she's clearly brilliant, right? She kind of had to be. She's self-taught, uh, had no real or very limited formal education. Um, so this is a woman who is, is clearly capable of doing pretty much what she set her mind to. Um, so this is Lucy Parsons. How much of Lucy Parsons is politics and how much of Lucy Parsons is identity? You know, this is who I've become. It's one of those weird questions that I, I don't know that it needs to have an answer, but, you know, trying to talk about where people come from and how they become who they are and the principled way they continue through their lives versus people who sort of change with the times, looking for other ways to stay in the limelight, I, perhaps. She's not just a celebrity. She's hounded. She's, uh, she's constantly tracked by police. And as you say, she may have actually enjoyed that, perhaps. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what, what makes Lucy Parsons, you know, this, this person that is so really impressive and yet is so, for the most part, forgotten to us? And this is a really impressive person. Well, there are a couple answers to your question, I think. First of all, I didn't really have much uh, material that revealed her interior state of mind. Mm. That is, uh, most of my sources were um, newspaper articles, her writings, but her writings were mostly propaganda. They did not uh, reveal much about her background at all or about her feelings. And I do speculate in the book that denying her background, denying her identity, I think took an emotional toll on her. Remember that her owner brought the plantation from either Virginia or Tennessee, I'm not sure which, to Texas in the middle of the Civil War. That was a terrible trek. Uh, that was a long, hard trek that probably took several months. Uh, enslaved people probably died along the way. Uh, what she endured on that uh, trek, we can only speculate. But it, I do say that um, over time, it appears that she, um, you know, uh, again, there is a toll here that um, this uh, inability to confront her, her own background took on her. And I, I talk about her children and uh, give the, um, the story, which is a heartbreaking one, I think. She had two children. Um, Albert Jr., who was born in um, 1878 or 9, and then Lulu, born in 1881. Lulu died at an early age um, uh, in 1888, I believe. But Albert um, finished high school, and she hoped to groom him uh, to be his father's successor, to take over uh, and lead the revolution after his father's death. He had no interest in doing that. And in fact, in 1899, when she was declaiming on Chicago street corners against 
U.S. intervention in Cuba and the Philippines, he came home one day, he was about 20 years old then, and announced that he was going to join the army and go off and fight. And that enraged her. And as a result, she um, dragged him before a judge in a Chicago insane court, court for the insane. And she had him committed to an insane asylum north of Chicago, where he died 20 years later. And uh, there's no evidence she ever went to see him. She could not tolerate the thought that her own son would humiliate her. And she went to extreme measures to prevent him from doing that. So, you know, People who met her th said that she was a real, um, she was a difficult person. Mm. She was a difficult person. She, um, I don't find much evidence that she had a sense of humor. Mm. She was judgmental. She could be very putty in her comments to individuals if she didn't like them or didn't approve of their politics. So that's certainly part of it. Mm -hmm. I, and I just want to add, uh, too, about why she isn't known today is a better note. I think that her impact was very much based on her speaking ability. Mm -hmm. And she could really rile up a crowd, which the police knew and feared. Uh, but as a result, her effect, in a way, I think was kind of ephemeral. And by that, I mean that, you know, we have no recordings of her speeches. We have certainly transcripts. But we don't get a sense of the way she could really inspire a crowd. She was literally an agitator mm -hmm. and um, people of various political persuasions love to hear her because she seemed to transgress boundaries and break norms in terms of what a woman could or should say but he did not have the lasting impact of an Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman was the editor of um, Mother Earth obviously and uh, for a variety of other reasons Emma Goldman um, became a, a cultural icon, uh, very well known for her activities. Lucy Parsons mainly was a speaker. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Dynamite Has No Politics, and our guest is Jacqueline Jones, author of Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons, American Radical. Well, uh, you mentioned Goldman there. We might as well talk about the quote-unquote conflict between the two or to try to understand uh, the differences even in how they present as anarchists. Um, one of the... As as you know, it is it is kind of hard to read about Lucy Parsons and, and understand uh, some of the choices she might have made, or especially in terms of her son, not something you'd imagine an anarchist doing. But right. uh, but to imagine also a woman um, struggling to, I suppose, be uh, a proponent again of labor of of class um, and also arguing kind of against the, what I think seems the diversion of Emma Goldman's politics to Lucy Parsons, right? Emma Goldman is uh, more on the lines of uh, liberation, right? A, a, a woman who feels the individual has the right to do and be and and think how they want. And this is a, uh, primarily in Emma Goldman's case, you get the sense that it's as much sexual, or at least that's played as Emma Goldman's primary or one of her major tenets, you know, is to be free, to be a 
sexual being as a woman, to have free speech be a part of that. These are things um, that we can imagine anarchists sharing, but Lucy Parsons was certainly not taken with the idea of uh, free love or uh, even as she might have participated in it, but uh, was, it was not part of her anarchist program. Right, and I think we have to begin by acknowledging that they were both rivals for public attention. <laughs> both of them loved to make headlines. They loved to be interviewed, and uh, Lucy Parsons certainly, I think, resented Emma Goldman when she came to Chicago, which she did often. Uh, their anarchism was very different. Emma Goldman, not so enamored as, uh, with uh, trade unions as Lucy Parsons, but at least in public, the conflict revolved around um, uh, sexual liberation. Emma Goldman, uh, yes, declaring that uh, artistic sexual liberation were kind of the defining characteristics of anarchists. Lucy Parsons, interestingly enough, lived as a a sexually free woman. She uh, had a child before she and Albert were married. We're not sure of the father, but we think it was a former slave in Waco, Oliver Benton. She, uh, soon after Albert's execution, took up with a much younger man, Martin Locker. They had a very public, very uh, tumultuous and passionate uh, love affair before they fought and broke up. And she had a series of lovers. She um, lived the last years of her life with George Mark Stahl, who was um, a man she met uh, in California. So uh, she, li she lived as uh, Goldman preached, we might say. But uh, publicly, uh, Parsons adopted this very prim Victorian persona. She declared that the family was sacred, that it was important for women to know the father of their children, <laughs> that, you know, if you have a, a freewheeling uh, sex life, you might not know who um, fathered your child and that this would be a great tragedy. And she really pushed back against uh, these um, anarchists in the, the late 19th century, those writing in the 1890s in particular, about uh, sexual freedom, and they called it varietism, meaning a variety uh, in, in life partners. So um, Goldman considered her a huge hypocrite and said at one point in public, you know, um, how can she lecture <laughs> Uh, people about morality or decorum when, you know, we all know she lives her private life in a very different way from her public pronouncement. But, um, yeah, their anarchism was very different, but as personalities, they were both very um, strong, and I think they were rivals mm -hmm. for uh, for media attention mm -hmm. in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, it's one of those things that I, I don't know anything, you know, I can't say I think uh, Lucy Parsons felt this way. What, what I mean to say is that there, there's, an, there's, for me, a, a way in which you, uh, if you walk into the future of anarchy in some sense, right, where, where anarchism itself begins to change, where uh, intellectuals and quote-unquote bohemians begin to, um, to move away from, obviously, the, the, the violent, rhetoric uh, and even the class struggle rhetoric to to try to shatter, I guess, social taboos, uh, to deal with sex, to deal with those kinds of freedoms, you move away from the class uh, distinctions, you move away from class analysis even, and work on identity and individualism. And in some sense, you could say that this does diffuse your your power in some ways. Well, certainly by the 1920s, as you say, anarchism has very much a cultural 
sensibility and is losing its radical labor sensibility. Mm -hmm. uh, anarchists, again, yes, identified with uh, artists, musicians. Um, she was, um, she did uh, appear at the Dill Pickle, which was a coffee house for radicals in Chicago in the 1920s. But I say this, it's kind of poignant there that by that time, Lucy Parsons has become something of a cultural artifact herself mm -hmm. that's regarded with curiosity. I, I tell about the, um, the day trips that Northwestern University students take to visit various sites around the city that are um, somehow associated with radicalism. And, and one stop is, is to meet with Lucy Parsons and to hear her expand about the Haymarket trial. But she's, she's considered very quaint, uh, very old-fashioned. By this time, she's well into her 70s. And uh, anarchism, um, which, of course, uh, around the time of World War I and, and before was really increasingly associated with wild-eyed bomb throwers, mm -hmm. anarchism, that type of anarchism has re receded to be replaced by this much more um, safe and uh, culturally inclined mm -hmm. That's our show. We'll close with one from Alice Coltrane, with another kind of transformation. This is Turiya and Ramakrishna from 1970. Thanks to Jacqueline Jones for joining us to talk about the long and amazing American life of Lucy Parsons. Jones's book, The Goddess of Anarchy, The Life and Times of Lucy Parsons' American Radical, was published in December 2017 by Basic Books. Next time on Interchange, Ralph Ellison, Black and Blues. Jason Fickle and M. Cooper Harris return to discuss the invisible theology in Ralph Ellison's novel Invisible Man and the influence of blues and jazz in Ellison's work. Ralph Ellison, Black and Blues. Next time on Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon edited our program and Bryce Martin selected our music. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. ¶¶